Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Do not expose the mogwai to light, especially sunlight, which will kill it. Do not let it come into contact with water, and above all, never feed it after midnight. But isn't every time after midnight? Like, can you feed it at 6am? Can you feed it at 10am? Can you feed it at 5pm? Or can you only feed it at 11.59pm? But then isn't that after midnight the previous day? And then what about time zones? Even Jess doesn't get it. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone and Merry Christmas! I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 74, Gremlins. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And this is the final episode of 2020 and what a crazy year it's been. Genuinely filled with such random highs and lows. Um, obviously, make sure you're continuing to stave away the gremlin of a virus, that is COVID-19. Um, and to be honest, doing a solo podcast during 2020 has kind of been the epitome of social distancing. Um, so, so, you know, I guess that's one positive to kind of for me to take from it. Obviously, uh, this episode is out on Christmas Eve, uh, a couple of days before for the patrons. Um, but it goes without saying, please stay safe and well over the festive period, whether you celebrate it or not. Follow the rules, a bit like gremlins and stay healthy. That's kind of the most important thing. Again, thank you for being here, uh, especially for this Christmas episode. I know a lot of podcasts are releasing Christmas episodes during this time, and I'm grateful that you've chosen Verbal Diorama as your Christmas podcast episode of choice. And um, and I guess a massive thank you for the Captain America feedback. Uh, the last three episodes were on all three Captain America movies. Uh, people obviously really love the character. Uh, they love Chris Evans. And what I kind of designated as Chris Mus, obviously, um, was kind of a bit of a success. Covering three massive movies and, and additionally kind of three MCU movies, one after the other, was a bit of a feat. Um, especially coming so soon after another massive MCU episode on Black Panther, uh, which again, kind of, that's just how it kind of worked out. Um, needless to say, don't expect to see the MCU back on this podcast anytime soon. Um, I do have plans to cover more of the MCU because I'm a big fan, um, but not for a while. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be steering away from the MCU for a little bit. Now, I was here with my little gremlin. She's actually gone. Uh, the door to the study is open. She is free to come and go as she pleases. And she has chosen to leave. Um, so, but while she was here, she was here when I was recording the intro. She was being very cute and very Mogwai-like. Um, but do you know what? Like sometimes if you don't follow the rules, she sometimes turns, you know, don't expose this recording to bright lights. Don't get the microphone wet. Um, and I never feed myself while recording. Um, and that's mainly because if I feed myself, uh, she will probably want to eat the food. But to be honest, she's not even here right now. So 
I don't even know if she's being a gremlin. <laughs> I had big plans for her to be here with me for this episode. And she has basically just said, nah, I don't want anything to do with this episode. I'm leaving. Um, I don't know if she'll be back. But she is welcome to come back at any point. You might hear her. Hopefully she will come back. Um, but enough of my little gremlin. Let's move on to the real gremlins. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Ma, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who are about to give him... You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. We'll wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift... <laughs> He ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. They become clever. Mischievous. What's going on here? And dangerous. Gremlins, huh? Little monsters. Right. Hundreds of them. Well, I don't know, maybe thousands. They've been here too. Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? Look, I know it sounds crazy, I know. But in a few hours, you're gonna have a major disaster on your hands. <laughs> Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante. They'll be expecting you. In search of the perfect Christmas present for Billy, his teenage son, Randall Peltzer comes up with a mogwai. But this otherwise sweet and furry pet companion comes with a warning. Should its unwise owner break the three fundamental guidelines of owning such a unique creature, all hell will break loose. Of course, Billy disregards the strict rules, and as the once adorable animal spawns terrifying, minuscule critters, the suburban haven of Kingston Falls is under siege. Now there is no turning back, and destruction is at hand. Is there an escape from this endless Yuletide nightmare and the horrible menace of the Gremlins? Who knows? Let's find out, shall we? <laughs> so the cast of this movie, we'll just quickly go through. We have Zach Galligan as Billy Peltzer, Phoebe Cates as Kate Berringer, Hoyt Axton as Randall Peltzer, Polly Holiday as Ruby Deagle, Francis Lee McCain as Lynn Peltzer, Glyn Turman as Mr. Hansen, Howie Mandel as Gizmo, and Frank Welker as Stripe. These are obviously the voices of Gizmo and Stripe, by the way. Not the actual people, because as we're going to come to it, these are puppets. They're not people. Uh, also in roles in this movie, we have Judd Reinhold as Gerald Hopkins, Dick Miller as Murray Futterman, Key Luke as Mr. Wing, Corey Feldman as Pete Fountain, and Mushroom the Dog as Barney. And I have to say, Mushroom probably gives the finest performance in this whole movie, because all of his reactions to the Mogwai puppet are genuine. Uh, so Mushroom is fantastic in this movie. Uh, the Mogwai and Gremlin voice effects were by Michael Winslow, Peter Cullen, Bob Bergen, Fred Newman, Mark Dodson, Michael Sheehan and Bob Holt. It was written by Chris Columbus and directed by Joe Dante. And this episode is basically everything this podcast loves. And it's for Christmas. So it's this is like a massive gift for me, let alone for everyone who actually voted for Gremlins on Twitter. Um, Gremlins was up against The Long Kiss Goodnight and Edward Scissorhands because I kind of wanted to go against the more traditional Christmas movies. Uh, last year, uh, the Christmas movie I covered was Arthur Christmas, which is a genuine Christmas movie and it is genuinely fantastic. Um, but obviously this movie has serious Christmas pedigree. Uh, it's obviously written by the same guy who directed Home Alone for a start. Um, and while it's not seen as a traditional Christmas movie, like Die Hard, it's set at Christmas and Christmas plays a part in the plot. Ergo, it's a Christmas movie. Um, and um, I am not going to hear anything to the contrary on that. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, welcome. 
by the way. Uh, the first thing you should know, if you are new, is that although I'm not a massive horror fan, I kind of do really like horror adjacent stuff. Um, and technically this is a horror comedy. I find it moderately scary in a sense that I, I still struggle with some of the jump scares a little bit. But the thing I love the most, kind of about this and uh, some of the other horror adjacent stuff that I've covered, um, as well as non-horror, because you know, it's not really a, a horror thing, but um, puppets. Obviously this movie has puppets. I love puppets. Um, I love puppetry and puppet work. I also love animatronics and stop motion. And so Gremlins is just like literal joy, concentrated in a podcast episode for me. Um, and that's why I'm really excited to be talking about Gremlins, because I think this movie is this movie is everything that's great about Hollywood movies, really. And there's kind of lots to go into on Gremlins. But I want to start with the origins of the story and obviously how Chris Columbus actually conceived these creatures. And one of the things about doing a podcast is that, you know, occasionally things go wrong, you know, recordings don't record or word documents mysteriously disappear and audio files going corrupt. I actually had this last week on Civil War. I started editing Civil War and I wanted to insert an audio file. And luckily it was right at the start of the episode. So I hadn't really done a great deal of editing work. And I put this audio file in and my software crashed. And I was like, oh no, because I've got software. It's quite good. And it does save uh, at certain points. And I was like, oh, I hope it's saved. I hope it's saved. And the software rebooted back up and it hadn't actually saved. So I had to do all of my editing up to that point again. And, you know, sometimes these things happen because it's technology and sometimes things go wrong. Um, and that happens to every podcast. Uh, genuinely, every single podcast, I guarantee they have had some form of technical difficulties. And I think it is it is easy just to kind of blame technology. But it could also be gremlins sabotaging your podcast or anything that you're doing uh and the term was coined in the 1920s by the royal air force as a kind of slang way to explain aircraft malfunctions the word itself was first published in text in 1929 and obviously similar creatures to gremlins things like fairies leprechauns and goblins are prevalent in mythology and have existed in folk stories from many cultures for ages there's a multitude of stories uh, about these creatures uh, as to their origins the the actual word gremlin is said to be derived from the old english word gremian which is meaning to vex um, which kind of actually makes quite a lot of sense so it was in world war ii when the terminology gremlins was popularized um, and it was originally gremlins were thought to be sympathizing with the enemy in a sense that the British planes were having all these problems. And it was thought, well, these gremlins are obviously sympathising with the Germans. And then it was discovered that these mechanical problems kind of beset the enemy forces as well. And they actually became an important tool for pilot morale, as it kind of attributed blame for mechanical difficulties to gremlins and away from people like the mechanics and the pilots who were actually, you know, fighting the Luftwaffe. Uh, the finger of blame was square on gremlins, and they actually became the focal point of certain war propaganda. And that was basically encouraging the public to stay safe, to watch their step, and to basically keep vigilant to what was happening around them. Because everyone could fight gremlins, even women and children. And so it was a really important part of the war effort. Uh, even Bugs Bunny starred in a uh, short called Falling Hair in 1943, which had Bugs battling a gremlin on a plane. This was followed by another Merry Melody short in 1944, showing Russian gremlins sabotaging Adolf Hitler's plane. And outside of the RAF, because obviously the terminology wasn't really known outside of the RAF, but it was author Roald Dahl. Uh, he's actually credited with making the term gremlins popular. He flew in the 80 Squadron in the RAF. He actually crash landed in the western desert of Egypt, probably at the behest of those dastardly gremlins. And gremlins were the subject of his first children's novel. Uh, the novel was called The Gremlins and it was written for Walt Disney Productions in anticipation of a feature length animated film, which never materialised. And Dahl's story was about gremlins who sabotage mechanical vehicles as revenge for mankind's destruction of their forest home. The gremlins in the story are convinced to join forces with the RAF to fight against Hitler and the Nazis. And Chris Columbus wasn't inspired by the Roald Dahl story, but he was by mice in his house. 
uh, and these mice would come out and just make incredible noise at night. And he wondered, well, you know, I can actually make a story out of this. Um, the original screenplay for Gremlins was written as a spec script, which was never intended to actually be made until Steven Spielberg came across the script. And it was exactly the sort of thing that he liked because it was totally dark. Uh, that's right, Jess. She is back, everyone. <laughs> She's made her presence known. Um it was totally dark it had frightening scenes but it, it was aimed at a family market uh spielberg himself was busy with indiana jones and the temple of doom uh which also kind of erred on the side of dark and frightening because obviously someone's beating heart gets ripped out which still petrifies me but spielberg called gremlins one of the most original things he'd come across in many years and i'm going to talk about it later but temple of doom and gremlins would be released within two weeks of each other in the u.s and Gremlins would also be released uh, alongside the cultural behemoth that was Ghostbusters. Um, and it's it's interesting to note as well that the trailer for Gremlins doesn't actually really feature any Gremlins. Um, there are multiple trailers for Gremlins, but the very first trailer, the one that I played at the start of this episode, is the original trailer for Gremlins. You don't see any Gremlins. You see them in shadows, you see them from the back. But you only actually see Gizmo. Um, and this marketing strategy and the overall feedback for the movie would contribute to changing the MPAA rating system. But I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because there's a lot of things that Gremlins is responsible for. So we have Steven Spielberg, one of the best known and highly regarded directors in Hollywood as a producer, plus Chris Columbus as a writer. And obviously you need a director. Uh, Spielberg knew of Joe Dante from his work directing The Howling, which starred Dee Wallace. Dee Wallace would go from that to Spielberg's E.T., as well as his essential spoof of Jaws, Piranha, uh, which would end up competing with Jaws 2, and they'd go on to work together, in inverted commas, on the anthology movie Twilight Zone, the movie. Reportedly, Spielberg considered Tim Burton after the success of his short film Frankenweenie, but as Burton had not directed a feature film, and Dante had, Spielberg went for the latter rather than the former. And actually, Gremlins is the first movie that shows Spielberg's famous Amblin Entertainment logo. Chris Columbus's original story for Gremlins was much darker uh, and relied more on the horror elements in the comedy. Uh, several drafts of the script were produced before a shooting script was finalised. It's not the first time that a family movie has kind of walked a fine line between horror and, shall we say, acceptability. And movies that frightened children but intrigued adults were a bit of a thing in the 80s. You know, The Secret of Nim has scary moments. Never Ending Story has a petrifying wolf creature. And some very sad things that I don't want to talk about right now. Watership Down traumatised a generation of children. Um, and let's not forget, Who Framed Roger Rabbit steamrolled and then resurrected one of the scariest villains in any family movie ever in Judge Doom. I covered that on episode four of this podcast. It's a genuine slice of brilliance. But Judge Doom is genuinely very, very scary. But what I'm trying to say is that kids' movies weren't really watered down. Um, and arguably, in its original form, Gremlins would have relied more on an R rating. It included scenes like Billy's mother getting beheaded uh, and the Gremlins eating Billy's dog, as well as all of the customers in a McDonald's. So the Gremlins actually ate the customers rather than the burgers. Um, the original premise was that Gizmo would transform into Stripe for the remainder of the movie, and it was Spielberg who vetoed that, as he had the power to do so. And Joe Dante still credits the movie's ultimate success to that simple decision, um, because what started as a, in Dante's words, grotty little horror movie, would become a broader appeal horror comedy once Warner Brothers got involved and the budget was upped. Because once this happened, the horror elements had to be toned down. Uh, a wider audience was required for a higher budget movie. And so Columbus's script was toned down. It was made a bit more whimsical and have Gizmo turn out to be the hero, which was ultimately one of the best decisions that Steven Spielberg had literally ever made in his life. Because Gizmo, as a character, is the focal point for the movie. He is the cute, lovely little hero that we all need. And obviously Gizmo kind of comes into his own a little bit more in the sequel, which I'm not really going to talk about in this episode, mainly because I want to talk about Gremlins 2, The New Batch, another time, because it's such a remarkably different movie to this. And it's a lot of fun. But it was just a really excellent decision to keep Gizmo in this movie um, and to kind of tone down some of the horror bits. 
having Spielberg at the helm would also keep the revelationist about why Phoebe Cates' character Kate hates Christmas. And this was because her father dressed up as Santa and fell down the chimney and broke his neck and died. Steven Spielberg didn't actually like the scene at all and, and nor did studio executives. They basically wanted it out of the movie. But Joe Dante really wanted to keep it. And basically Spielberg's clout with the studio executives meant that when Spielberg ultimately sided with Dante, the scene was left in. And the so-called Santa claustrophobia urban legend is mentioned in many songs. Uh, there are bizarrely numerous verified accounts of men Dressing as Santa, climbing down chimneys and getting stuck. Although, unlike Kate's father, uh, no deaths have ever been reported. Um, but still, I mean, really? Climbing down chimneys dressed as Santa? Okay. Obviously, the cast of this movie, Phoebe Cates, she's one of the 80s most recognisable faces. Drop Dead Fred might be universally despised by critics, but I adore that movie, <laughs> really genuinely. Um... <laughs> I, I watched it all the time when I was a kid and it always made me laugh and every time I think of it, it makes me laugh. That's kind of what that movie is all about to me and um, obviously R.I.P. Rick Mayle because he was fantastic in that movie and I, I adore it, I really do. Phoebe Cates, she retired from acting in the early 90s but it was her chemistry with Zach Galligan that led to him being cast as the lead Billy Peltzer because he was a relative unknown at the time and the supporting cast is basically a who's who of movies, uh, including the legend Dick Miller, who was also in Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. I did an episode on that for Halloween, uh, as well as the likes of Glyn Turman and Key Luke. Uh, Key Luke's career had spanned half a century at that point. Uh, he was the first Chinese-American actor to be signed by RKO, Universal Pictures and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Gremlin's sequel, uh, The New Batch, would be his penultimate performance before his death, uh, again, as Mr. Wing. He was 80 when he filmed Gremlins and he looked so youthful, they had to actually apply makeup to make him look older. And uh, and I'll be completely honest, I have a real mental block when it comes to Judge Reinhold. Uh, I can never remember his name, but I always remember his face. Because <laughs> I don't know why that is. But Judge Reinhold is also in this, uh, as is a very, very young Corey Feldman. And, and talking about remembering things... Jess, come on then. This is what I have to put up with. Come on, if you want to sit with me. And speaking of things that are memorable, uh, obviously the movie was shot on the Courthouse Square and Colonial Street sets of the Universal Studios lot at Universal City. And if you're thinking that Kingston Falls looks familiar... You'd be right, of course, because it's the same set that they used for Hill Valley Plaza in Back to the Future, right up to the famous courthouse, and obviously the cinema showing A Boy's Life and Watch the Skies, which were also nods to E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They were both the working titles for those movies. There are a lot of nods to Spielberg in this movie, and obviously Gremlins predates Back to the Future by a year, but that Hill Valley set is so iconic, it's kind of hard to not call it the Hill Valley set, um, and it's hard to not think of Back to the Future, uh, and this kind of set, and the set itself was covered in fake snow, and honestly, I don't even want to think about snow being wet, and Gremlins walking in snow, which is wet, and technically they should reproduce, I'm not even thinking about that, because, do you know what, it doesn't matter, <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't matter, Gremlins is perfect, let's not talk about plot holes, um, because what we're really here for is the puppets, right? Because the first thing that immediately struck me after not seeing Gremlins for a few years was how great it all still looked. And, and bearing in mind, I, I don't have it in high definition. I have it on DVD. Um, so it, it's never going to look as brilliant as it would in high def. But it still looks so fantastic. And I feel like, and, and I always say this on this podcast, but this speaks to the brilliance of practical effects. Because there is no CGI in this movie. Chris Wallace, he designed the puppets for Gremlins. They were all identical apart from Stripe. And Gizmo was purposefully made to look like Steven Spielberg's pet beagle with the same colour fur. The puppets were controlled by cables inserted within them, which were remote controlled. And sets were built obviously off the floor so puppeteers could be underneath operating the Gremlins. Originally the idea was to use monkeys wearing masks, but the test monkey panicked. They decided, well, okay, we can't use monkeys then. The scenes where humans interacted with the gremlins were filmed first and then puppet-only work was filmed. 
These mechanical puppets would often break down, and although there were multiple puppets, they cost around anything from twenty to forty thousand dollars each. So security around them was incredibly tight. Security personnel even checked people's cars as they left set because they were so worried that someone would steal one of these puppets. And the small gizmo puppet tended to break down more than any other one. Uh, maybe because he was the source of the gremlins, perhaps. But anyway, uh, these small puppets couldn't show facial expressions. And so bigger faces were used to show expressions, which obviously also meant you had to use larger props around them. Marionettes were also used, as well as a single stop-motion shot as the gremlins are walking down the street. Uh, it would have been too time-consuming to use stop-motion for the whole movie, but they did consider it, along with the aforementioned monkeys, before going with puppets. Um, and while I always appreciate a good homage to Ray Harryhausen, I do feel like the puppets bring something completely brilliant and special to gremlins that I don't think stop-motion could. And that's And I'm saying that with all the love in the world for stop-motion because I really genuinely do love stop motion. Puppets feel more real. And, and good puppetry really is a genuine art form that's kind of sadly becoming more and more redundant. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I really love covering these movies, because A, I really love talking about them. And B, I love kind of trying to make people aware that these movies exist. Um, arguably, I think everyone... Uh... Jess, why are you making lots of noise? You are literally making the most possible noise right now. She's walking on a paper bag that happens to be on the floor. Jess, are you done? Are you done? Whose bright idea was it to have Jess on this recording? Was it mine? <laughs> yeah, was it mine? Oh, okay. Come on then. Jess, do you like gremlins? You do? Is it your favourite? Oh, okay. She says it's not her favourite, but she likes it a lot. Come on then. And how do you make a mogwai multiply? Uh, not water, although obviously in the movie it certainly helps, but balloons. Lots of balloons were used for the bubble effects on Gizmo's back, as well as the little balls of fur themselves. Even the gremlin who was burst in the microwave by Billy's mum was made of a balloon. Um, and I'm going to come back to this that particular scene in a bit, because the violence in this movie actually obviously caused quite a lot of issues. Mogwai, as a word, is Cantonese and actually means monster or demon or evil spirit. A non-canonical backstory was written for the Mogwai by George Guyp, who penned a novelization stating that Mogwai were created by an alien scientist called Mog Terman. He wanted to create a highly intelligent species capable of reproducing quickly and able to live under a variety of conditions. Mogwai were supposed to be benevolent, but he didn't anticipate what their offspring would be like. And their gremlin side was the complete opposite, so cruel, sadistic and violent. Only one in 10,000 mogwai would retain their sweet demeanour. The problem was that before the gremlin's evil side was found out, mogwai were sent to a variety of planets, one of which being Earth. And I mean, technically, if I'm being picky, 
uh, and obviously not just about this movie because I love it, technically Mogwai themselves aren't the evil spirits. Mogwai just create the evil spirits. Gizmo himself avoids the creation of gremlins. When offered food after midnight, he says no. He doesn't want any of these gremlins running around. It's almost like he's experienced it before and he's like, nah, mate, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want this. And it's, it's quite interesting how Gizmo is the way that he is. It's almost like he has this kind of learned experience. Like he just knows. And in this uh, non-canonical backstory, we find out that Mogwai themselves, the original Mogwai, are actually technically immortal and basically the offspring of the mogwai their life expectancy decreases through each kind of generation of creature that's created after that so gizmo canonically or non-canonically as it is could very well be she's back on the bag again could very well be the first of these creatures um and he's kind of been there done that throughout the all these centuries and he's just like Nah, I know what's going on. If you grew up in the, the late 90s, you'll remember a toy phenomenon called Furby. They were little electronic robotic furry toys which could speak to you in kind of their own language, which was called Furbish. They were released by Hasbro and it kind of became the it toy of 1998, the toy that every kid wanted for Christmas. And the similarities to Mogwai were a little bit indisputable. And when Joe Dante and producer Mike Finnell noticed the similarities, they pointed it out to Warner Brothers. Interestingly, shortly after this, a licensed Gizmo Furby was on sale. It was limited to only 250,000 worldwide. And it also featured Howie Mandel, the real voice of Gizmo. Uh, that Furby remains incredibly rare and collectible. Reportedly, a seven-figure settlement uh, between Hasbro and Warner Brothers meant that the inevitable lawsuit from Warner Brothers was technically buried. Uh, the licensed Gizmo Furby actually helped Hasbro to a $10 million profit. So, uh, basically, everyone won <laughs> from the Gizmo Furby. Uh, Hasbro didn't get sued. And, uh, and obviously, a licensed deal will always make money for the people who are licensing the product. So it would have obviously made quite a lot of that money, that profit to Hasbro would have also ended up in the laps of Warner Brothers. So everyone wins, basically. And when it was released, uh, and I'm going to come to specifics about its release shortly, it was marketed as maybe a bit more family friendly than it actually was. Uh, there are reports of parents taking children to see gremlins and walking out halfway through, mainly due to scenes like the microwaving of a gremlin, um, and obviously, you know, various other scary and violent bits. Uh, back then, the MPAA, or the Motion Picture Association of America, to give them their full name, had a PG rating followed by an R rating. And it was Gremlins, along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which had both been classified PG, meaning children of any age could be taken along to the cinema with their parents. Because of these two movies, the MPAA created the PG-13 rating, which was introduced on the 1st of July 1984. The first movie to get that rating was the film Red Dawn, and that stated that children under the age of 13 needed special guidance and that some material may be inappropriate for younger children. The onus was still on the parents to make the decision, but parents could be better informed on the levels of gore, violence or sexual situations and make appropriate decisions based on this new PG-13 rating. Here in the UK, Gremlins was originally classified as a 15, uh, which is technically an R rating if you compare it to the American rating. And this was before the BBSC created the 12 certificate in August 1989 and the 12A certificate in 2002. Gremlins has since been reclassified as a 12A in 2012. My DVD, though, is really old, so it's still rated 15. Uh, I'm quite proud that I have a 15 rated Gremlins, um, <laughs> which I know I shouldn't be because it's the same movie. And I even had a look on the BBFC website to see if, you know, the movies are any different because sometimes movies get cut for certain ratings. But the movies appear to be exactly the same movie. It's just that they've literally reclassified it. It's definitely something to thank Gremlins for. Moving on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a little feature that I do where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring 
with Keanu Reeves. And it never gets easier. Uh, and the connections do get more tedious. So bear with me. Um, so Gremlins actually inspired a Scottish post-rock band to name themselves Mogwai. Uh, Mogwai are still together. They're still active. Uh, they have been since 1995. Uh, and Mogwai played at Glastonbury one year. Glastonbury is a very famous uh, British music festival. I have not been, by the way, but I would I would very much like to go to Glastonbury one day. Um, and uh, they found a suspicious liquid that may or may not be we, uh, and may or may not have belonged in Keanu Reeves' body at one time. And there's this story that I found on the internet about the band Mogwai and Keanu Reeves' we. And I was just like, okay, that's what I'm going to use as my obligatory Keanu reference. And um, yeah, uh, talking about Keanu Reeves' we, it's fine. It's Christmas. I can talk about anything I want. Uh, <laughs> so moving on to the music, let's move away from we um, and move on to the music. So the score for Gremlins... Uh, and obviously, the incredibly well-known track, The Gremlin Rag, uh, was all composed by the late Jerry Goldsmith, who also did the score for The Mummy, by the way, which, as you all know, is the greatest movie ever made. And Gizmo's song um, was actually not performed by Howie Mandel. It was performed by a young girl from Goldsmith's synagogue. So Gremlins was released on the 8th of June, 1984, in the US, as I'm going to be talking about shortly, on the same day as Ghostbusters. We had to actually wait almost six months. And I think I mentioned this in a previous episode of this podcast about examples of times. Actually, I think it was the last episode, Civil War, because I mentioned that for certain Marvel movies, the UK tends to get them before the US, which is something that never used to happen. Uh, this is a really good example, actually, of the length of time that we in the UK had to wait for movies because it was the 8th of June 1984 in the US and it was the 7th of December 1984 in the UK. So we had to wait six months for this movie and that was pretty commonplace actually. Um, interestingly though, we got the movie at Christmas time-ish, sort of December's kind of classed as Christmas time-ish, whereas it was released in the summer in the US and obviously, it's a movie set at Christmas, so it kind of makes sense to release it in December. However, at the time, it was a case of Warner Brothers. They wanted a movie to kind of compete in this particular June release date. There were movies coming out from Columbia, which was Ghostbusters. Paramount Pictures had a couple of movies coming out in the previous couple of weeks. So two weeks before that, they had Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And the week before that, they had Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. And so Warner Brothers really wanted to have a movie out for the summer. And so that's why uh, it got released in June. Uh, I have no idea why we had to wait till December, but like I say, it was just commonplace. And Gremlins was made for $11 million, which was still relatively cheap, uh, especially when you compare it to its release day stablemate, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters cost $30 million. Because it was released on the same day as Ghostbusters, it debuted at number two in the US box office, but it still made more than its budget back in that first weekend. Gremlins would go on to make $148 million worldwide, and it became the fourth highest grossing movie of 1984. That was behind Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, um, which is kind of an outstanding achievement for a relatively cheap little horror comedy where the puppets kept breaking down. Gremlins was, of course, followed in 1990 by Gremlins 2, The New Batch, which Joe Dante is actually gone on record to say that he prefers. And as I said, I want to kind of save the chat about The New Batch for a future episode. because, But I, I, I really do love that movie. It's a glorious satire of Hollywood sequels, and it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, a third movie was mooted in 2017, written by Chris Columbus. He described it as dark and twisted. And in 2019, an animated series called Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai was commissioned to premiere on HBO Max in 2021. Gremlins also spurned a lot of unrelated sort of small monster movies, the likes of Ghoulies, Hobgoblins and Munchies. None have reached quite the same level of Gremlins, though. Munchies was actually directed by the editor of Gremlins, uh, Tina Hirsch. Critters sort of is widely believed to have been made to cash in on Gremlins, but the director has refuted that, claiming the script for Critters 
predates gremlins i mean they are still quite similar though so <laughs> i think that just kind of goes to show there are no unique ideas anywhere ever literally anything you can think of it's not unique someone's already done it someone's already thought of it and that's very much the same between the likes of critters and gremlins uh, obviously gremlins is a hell of a lot more well known and a hell of a lot better it's worth noting that uh, after paper bag gate um jess has decided to completely leave um i have no idea where she's gone now she is not in the room anymore so i'm going to move on to social media thoughts um and each episode i ask on social media what do people think of the movie that i'm featuring and i expected a lot of comments for gremlins and that's purely because this was a listener choice so people really love this movie and they really wanted me to cover this movie and i'm really glad because it's exactly the sort of movie i love uh so on Twitter, we'll start with at BLC Agnew, who said, Gremlins is a lit stick of dynamite tossed through the front window of the Yuletide season that also somehow feels like a Christmas party. There's a reason it's endured as both a puckish holiday classic and a gateway horror film. It's simply a great example of both. At Derek Jones 198 said, I had a stuffed Gizmo doll as a kid and he was my best friend. I called him Gizzy. Gremlins is an amazing, bizarre, horror Christmas movie with tons of heart, laughs and little demons who just want to destroy. In short, everything Christmas. Don't feed them after midnight. At Very Brit Horror said, A wonderful film. I remember being obsessed with it as a kid, getting loads of the merchandise, but apparently it was a 15, so I'm not really sure how I saw it. Pirate video, perhaps. At At The Flicks Pod said, A film we have included in the At The Flicks advent calendar. Wonderful. Christmas 84 saw the release of both Ghostbusters and Gremlins in the UK. Ghostbusters was just okay, but Gremlins proved worthy of all the hype and its 15 certificate. At Cap Understands said, A film that is both sinister and amazingly funny with fantastic effects, made even better by the absolutely ridiculous and brilliant sequel, which changes how you look at the first movie. At Orland Score MSC said, Obey a few simple rules and everyone stays safe. Break them and chaos is unleashed. 2020 in a nutshell. More people should watch Gremlins and take this lesson to heart. Also, don't give people pets as gifts unless they consent. Not everyone is ready for that responsibility. At Russell's Movies said, It's always a delight to watch the puppetry scenes as Joe Dante clearly loves his creations. The fact that the rest is a wonderfully tight script makes this a festive must-watch for me as well as many, many, many other film fans. As Stungoat75 said, It's fun but also dark and a bit twisted. Jazz Gremlin in the bar just trying to chill out is still my favourite. Joe Dante is a very underappreciated director, I feel. At Beaver Does said, Fantastic Christmas horror movie. When the Gremlins go wild, it's one of the most fun times in a movie with some hilarious scenes, especially in the cinema. Also, the Phoebe Cates Christmas story is one of the darkest, most out-of-left-field things I have ever seen. At Waffles the Magic said, I would love to give you my thoughts, except a gremlin is currently destroying my phone. It's a good film, signed, not a gremlin. At Betamax Pod, simply said, Phoebe Cates, with a smiling face with heart-shaped eyes emoji. At in underscore feature, just posted a gif of gizmo which i'm taking that as a comment uh at movie maripod said when does after midnight turn into before the next midnight anytime you feed gremlins would technically be after the previous midnight at mashley movies said and what about time zones are gremlins internal clocks time zone specific at geek salad radio said so if i had a mogwai here and let's just say i borrowed it from you and he's no longer in gmt does that mean i can't feed it after seven my time and among all of the other great attributes that I no doubt know will be brought up, Gremlins asks us to ask the hard questions also. At Movies Work said, It's a little disturbing that Gremlins live in the same geographical grey areas as The Purge. At MGNP Podcast said, Gremlins is a holiday traditional movie in my home of one. The joy of Christmas but the fallout of consumerism around the holidays at its best. The film is still funny, unique and still works today. It's a great film to watch for the non-traditional Christmas movie fan. And at launching to pilot said, It's not a Christmas movie. Winky face. Uh, I will disagree with that wholeheartedly because I'm doing it for Christmas. So that makes it a Christmas movie. <laughs> uh, we didn't have any comments on Instagram this time. Uh, moving over to Facebook, we have Andrew who just says, I love this film. And Richard who said, where do they find all those perfectly tailored clothes? 
I blame Emily at Why This Film Podcast for now making me question this after years of never once thinking about this. Lol. Obviously, as always, a massive thank you to everyone who has provided comments. Uh, I'm always so grateful because often I wonder if anyone's going to provide any comments at all. But uh, you guys always kind of come through for me uh, and always provide me with some really wonderful comments. Uh, a lot of the times kind of covering stuff that I haven't even covered. It, it is a Christmas movie, though. <laughs> and obviously, while Gremlins does lean more on the horror than the comedy, it does bring me so much joy to revisit if only to reiterate how dumb humans can be especially when given clear instructions on doing things and choosing to do whatever they want with kind of no worry of the consequence uh and as it's been said in the comments uh this is very 2020 um mr wing is right humans aren't ready for responsibility gremlins as kind of a package is a truly wonderful experience and knowing just how much work went into it it kind of makes me love it that little bit more i kind of feel like any future gremlins movie might rely more or too much on cgi and that would be a real shame for me because puppets really do make such a difference and gremlins proves that irrevocably and really perhaps this christmas we should just make do and not go out hunting for strange weird and wonderful gifts as far as gremlins is concerned the fact this movie is still so popular after 36 years is really testament to the three men in charge of this project joe dante steven spielberg and chris columbus uh, it took its controversies and made gremlins into the must see creature feature of 1984 it is both a christmas movie and it's also a parody of monster movies with a little wizard of oz kind of sprinkled in there for good measure uh it also loves its movie references i haven't even mentioned snow white and the seven dwarves and the fact that gremlins love snow white uh <laughs> but it makes me kind of question it makes me ask myself are the gremlins us do we start out in the world as sweet and innocent mogwai only to kind of evolve into these evil vicious self-centered beings intent on consuming everything in sight and reproduction as well maybe mr wing was right we can't take something innocent without making it bad and maybe gremlin says more about humanity than we first thought thank you for listening as always i would love to hear your thoughts on gremlins obviously if you do like this episode please if you could take a moment to rate and review on something like apple Podcasts or podchaser that would be incredible. Um, and thank you to everyone who has ever given me a five-star review. I am just completely floored by everyone's reactions to the podcast. It's wonderful. It gives me a really great pick-me-up when I'm feeling low to read people's reviews. So thank you so much. She's back on the bag, everyone. She is back on the bag. <laughs> okay. Never work with gremlins or animals or children, everyone, especially if you have a podcast. What Jess is saying right now is tell your friends about this podcast. If you like this episode on Gremlins, I've also done episodes on Tremors. That is episode 41 of this podcast, by the way. Uh, I'd also recommend episode 45, which is Little Shop of Horrors, because that is, again, very horror-themed with puppets, and, and obviously so is Tremors as well. Um... And to kind of mix it up a little bit, I was like, well, I've done an episode on the Muppets. If you like this movie, then you might also like the Muppets. It's not in any way got any form of horror. In Jess, will you leave that bag alone? She is obsessed with that bag. Uh, I should have picked it up ages ago, but I've just kind of kept recording. Obviously. So yeah, Tremors, Little Shop of Horrors and the Muppets. Uh, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know if I missed anything. Uh, the next episode um, is obviously going to be the first of the second animation season that I'm doing, which I'm very excited about because you know I love animation. It's also one of Pixar's crowning achievements. The next episode of the podcast is going to be on Coco. Uh, Coco is a genuinely brilliant animated movie from its characters to its design and music. And really everything about Coco is top tier Pixar. It's also a wonderful way to talk about death um, and explain death to children in a way that's not scary. Uh, and that's something that Kubo and the Two Strings also touches on. Um, and I think I mentioned that in the Kubo episode, but 
I've always wanted to cover Coco, and so Coco will be the first episode of 2021, the first episode of animation season, and the first episode that patrons will get even earlier than they currently do. If you want to get in touch and talk to me about Gremlins, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Verbal Diorama. I'm also at Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama as well. And as I mentioned, I do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. Perks start at £2 or $2 a month. And one of the things I was doing this year was something called 20 in 2020. And my plan was to try and get 20 patrons. And I'll be completely honest, it's almost the end of December. I'm probably not going to make 20, but I'm cool with that. Like, I'm absolutely fine. So I had 17 patrons and I was happy with that. And then this week, I got my 18th patron. So my 18th patron joined the party and I'm so excited to welcome Scott uh, to the Verbal Diorama patron crew. Scott is one of the hosts of Monkey See Monkey Review podcast. And thanks to his generosity, I literally only have two patrons left to go. So, you know, if you are thinking of supporting the show then that would be great. And I might make 20 in 2020 or I might not. It's cool. Um, but obviously a massive thank you to all the patrons of Herbal Diorama uh, who have really kept me going this year. Um, in many ways, kept me going from a, a sort of morale point of view, but also kept me going from a, I need to get this done for these people point of view. Um, and they are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor, and Scott. They followed the rules and they never feed me compliments after midnight because I might just turn into a monster and it's not nice. I do have a merch store. If you are interested in buying merch, which, you know, not many people are and that's cool too. Um, but if you are, it's teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. You can get in touch with me on email if you want, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or you can fill out a form at verbaldiorama.com. And as always, I do some bits and pieces for film stories. Um, my stuff is kind of on a little bit of a break at the moment for Christmas. Uh, I will start again in January. But again, a massive thank you to everyone who's contributed and helped with podcast recommendations. And by that, I mean any podcast who's kind of let me behind the curtain of their shows, so to speak, um, and, uh, and allowed me to feature them because it's been a genuine joy to get to know you guys and um, and I'm looking forward to getting to know more of you. And obviously everything to do with film stories will be back in the new year, including stuff by me. And I'm going to simply finish this episode by wishing you all a very merry gremlin-free Christmas and a very happy new year. I'll see you in 2021. Bye. Movie tonight.